Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is... is the Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of The Science of Motherhood. I'm your co-host, Dr. Renee White. My beautiful other co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, is on maternity leave and I know that she would have absolutely loved to have been part of this episode because it is very sciencey. So, but don't worry, there might be a bit of jargon in it but we break it down and we explain it all, which is what I love about our guest today. Dr. Daniela Susik is a clinical research fellow in the field of obstetrics and a PhD candidate with the Microbiome Research Centre at UNSW. So she is actually an obstetrician herself. Um, So when she's not catching babies, she is obviously doing research and hanging out with her beautiful daughter, Abigail, who is three years old. And she has severe allergies, eczema and asthma, which is kind of something that has perhaps spurred Danny on to endeavour in this type of research into the microbiome. Danny's undertaken specialty training with Ransog and under the supervision of Dr. Amanda Henry and Professor Imad Elmar, she's working on the microbiome understanding in maternity study so the acronym for that is mums we love a good acronym as science nerds and what they're trying to do is establish if there are any causal links or associations between the action and the composition of microbiome during pregnancy and adverse pregnancy outcomes. So that might be gestational diabetes or hypertensive disorders and things like that. So you are going to hear today about the research that Danny is conducting and it is absolutely stellar. So as a scientist myself, I really didn't um, appreciate initially, but I do now, the amount of different biological samples Danny has been able to consent on taking from these mums who in fact are her own patients as an obstetrician. So she's getting things like stool samples, blood work, cord samples, skin samples, and she has conducted a longitudinal study where she's investigating how the microbiome of a mother is influencing her pregnancy and, and as we said, any of those adverse pregnancy outcomes. So Danny has been studying women and their babies for a year following birth, and she's currently writing up her thesis as we speak, and she's hoping to get that finalised and sorted away by the end of the year. But I have been, and as I describe in the first part of this interview, absolutely dying to get someone on the podcast who is a researcher and really passionate about this area, the microbiome, because that word kind of gets thrown around everywhere at the moment because it's a very hot topic. But what I wanted to do today with Danny is deep dive. What is it? What makes a good or a bad microbiome? How can we influence the microbiome? How can we optimize it for pre-pregnancy and postpartum? And then what do those influences actually make on the mother and the baby? And so Danny provides some really great research studies that are going on at the moment, and she does her absolute best to try and answer these questions, which are really, really hard. And the reason is we are at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this area of research. This is something that, as I said, is a very hot topic it's multifactorial. We are just learning the absolute basics at the moment. So 
I think it's a really, really valuable area of research to keep an eye on because it has such an amazing impact on our health and the health of our children. So I hope you learn a lot from this topic. We are making this episode one for Danny, 100%. She will absolutely be back on the podcast because I cannot wait to hear about all the finalized results from her study. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy my chat with Dr. Danny Susick. Hello, Dr. Daniela Susick. Oh, I'm going to call you Danny. Is that okay? Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Now we have got you on the podcast today for a deep dive into a topic that I have been burning to get someone on our show for, for a very long time. Mika, who is not here, she's on maternity leave at the moment, as all our longtime listeners would know. It was definitely in my top three of, we need to get someone on the podcast to talk about the microbiome. So I have been hunting for someone (laughs) and I have finally found you. Research extraordinaire, you are a clinical research fellow, but you are also an obstetrician and you are writing up your thesis right now. Is that correct? That's absolutely right, Renee. And so you are a PhD candidate at the Microbiome Research Centre at UNSW. Can you... Talk us through, how did you become interested in this topic? Yeah, it's a great question. I had a placement at St George Hospital actually when I was a registrar, so a trainee obstetrician gynaecologist many years ago, and I was about to change uh, my rotation to go down to Wollongong Hospital, and all of a sudden I got tapped on the shoulder and they said, oh, we re- really like you to do a PhD, and I thought, I'm not a, smart enough to do a PhD, and B, I just love my clinical job, so why would I go to a lab and do research for the rest of my life? No, thank you very much. <laughs> and then I said, okay, well, we'll just play with the idea and what would it be in? And um, they approached me and they said, look, we're starting the Microbiome Research Centre as part of the University of New South Wales, and one of the five pillars of our research um, spheres is women's health or women's and children's health. It's it's morphed into over the years. And I said, okay, well, I don't even know what that word is. So I Googled, because that's now a verb, the (laughs) microbiome, and I worked out that it's something to do with bugs and bacteria, maybe some viruses and something to do with DNA. And I thought, okay, well, that's well beyond my level of knowledge and comfort zone. But research sounds a bit interesting. And at that time, I had a little daughter, and my little daughter um, has food anaphylaxis and asthma and eczema. And I thought, okay, well, maybe if we're adding to the story, maybe this is part of it. So I agreed to commence that a couple of years later after I finished my basic training to become an obstetrician and gynecologist. And then this beautiful project called Mums was born. So thanks to my supervisor, uh, Dr. Amanda Henry, who coined the term mums after a few emails back and forward, uh, and it became the Microbiome Understanding in Maternity Study. Lovely. We love a good acronym, us scientists. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So we commenced that in 2018, and it was based at St. George Hospital in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And I basically called hundreds of women to see whether they would like to participate. I didn't know how willing women would be to a collect their stools swab their mouth and their vaginas for research um, during the course of their pregnancy but over the course of only about seven to eight months we recruited the whole cohort and it was this beautiful way of demonstrating what continuity of care with the clinician and researcher had in terms of its empowerment for the women. And as a result of that, we are still eagerly putting together all of the results that has come out of that research. The one thing you learn about research is that it takes a lot of time. It does. Um, and a lot of effort and a lot of funding for which there is not much of in the women's health sphere in Australia. Yes, I absolutely agree. The more I kind of deep dive into all of these women's health topics and areas of interest, you realise how much little we actually know about what's going on. Okay, that's really interesting. So how many how many women did you end up recruiting for the study? So 
I mean, as people who are in the science world know, we have to work out the number. So N equals what, question mark? And we worked out that if we wanted to look at differences between high-risk and low-risk pregnancies, then our N needed to equal 82. And I thought, I'm a very simple-minded person who likes practical things, so I like percentages and let's go for 100. (laughs) Um, And then I also know that people miscarry and have traumatic experiences during their labours and pregnancies. So we got to 117 initial recruits in order to have 100 that completed their three trimester visits and to the time of delivery. And then we followed them for another year after that as well. And actually, a lot of them came back for a special little added on two-year follow-up following oh, wow. approval. So we're, we're longitudinally studying these mums and their babies. So the, the N equaled 100 in the end, which made my maths much, much less traumatic for my thesis writing. <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing that I really hated about my thesis. I I don't I'm not I don't think I'm very good at maths probably because I don't like it at all. But yeah, the statistics around all the results section was not my strong suit. Let's just let's just talk about that. <laughs> That's exactly right. I've, I've had my head explode a few times and I've said I'd much prefer to be delivering a woman at three o'clock in the morning than to be <laughs> sitting here doing this, but that is okay. <laughs> and so let's let's rewind let's go back to the basics the study is about the microbiome for all those playing at home what is the microbiome because we see this word being thrown around and it sounds complex can you break it down for us what is the microbiome yeah and it's a very hot topic I must admit Mm. it means Once you read something four years later, it's completely superfluous and doesn't matter anymore. So it drives me a little bit crazy too. But there's two important terms to understand in this concept. And one is microbiota and one is the microbiome. So I like to explain it that the microbiota are all the bugs that we have that live on us and within us. So they are bacteria, viruses, although that's a very terrible word to say in the pandemic Mm. time fungi, archaea, so they're the different kingdoms and classes of the bugs that that live with us and have lived with us for millions of years as a world. And then the microbiome is actually their genetic material. So it's just important to think about that as two different concepts. So what you can do is take a sample from anywhere, any surface, I'm doing human research, so it's on our bodies or in our stool, and you basically take the sample and there's different ways of then working out the DNA on that sample that's not just our own DNA but the DNA of the microbiome or the microbiota that's living on us. So you process these samples in a lab and then you DNA sequence them essentially taking out all of the human parts and leaving you with little snippets of what are the different kingdoms. So whether they've got the bacteria within them or the viruses, you know, interestingly, our left hand is different to our right hand. And, you know, they're using the microbiome now in forensics because we all have our very unique fingerprint or footprint of what our own individualized microbiome is, which makes you can imagine this topic really difficult to work out causation and association and all of those things. Yeah. Okay. So the microbiota are the bugs themselves, but the microbiome is the genetic. So could you say that they're different varieties of the bacteria? And so could they then be categorized into, you know, good and bad for argument's sake? Yeah. So we definitely know that we have pathogens amongst us. So we have influenza, we have coronavirus, I'm not going to say that word again, um, <laughs> but we have E. coli, we have different things that cause issues for us and illnesses that we're, that we're known to. And when you look at the genetics, you can get down to a species level. So it's depending on how you sequence the samples that you've, you've taken, you can work out kind of the precise bacteria that it is mm-hmm. or the virus for example so we've spent our whole lives and most of our evolution since the invention of penicillin essentially trying to kill bugs and now we're trying to embrace them so we're kind of in that paradigm shift to say not all bugs are bad bugs and actually some bugs are vitally important to our existence as humans mm-hmm. and therefore the existence of our children and how we uh, best positioned to raise them in the healthiest possible way for the generations to come. Right. And so 
what makes, I guess, an ideal or optimal microbiome? Because we see, you know, there's there's a lot of information out there of people saying, you know, eat this food or or conduct a low tox lifestyle and and you know suggestions like that to influence and optimize your microbiome. What are the some of the things that that you've seen that influences microbiome to be at its best, I guess? Yeah, I mean again, these are such hard questions to answer. When you break it down, and you think about it in terms of diversity. Diversity is the one thing that we're losing in our ecology and in our world, so on lots of different levels with our endangered species, et cetera, and we can go down that pathway. But I like to use that same analogy when it comes to the microbiome. So the more diverse your microbiome is, the more healthy it is deemed to be. Mm-hmm. So when you have an imbalance, and it's really hard to even determine what's the normal human microbiome is. They did the Human Microbiome Project a number of years ago now, which basically just looked at a whole cohort of people testing from different orifices um, from their body to try and map out what the actual normal human microbiome was. But these studies are not huge and these studies are ever-evolving and now there's a lot of other cohort studies that are occurring around the world as well. So I think the key to the understanding at this point is diversity is the main thing that you're aiming for, which means how many different types of bugs you've got within you. So if you have a few bugs that are doing the job that they're supposed to do, then that's fine. But I guess if all of the other bugs also have an important job in terms of your immune system, your metabolism, how you process your foods and handle them, then you can imagine that if you had a whole army of very diverse little soldiers working in your gut, then your powerhouse is increased and your ability to do all of the things that they're, they're, we're working out that they function to do is also um, benefited from that. There's a great researcher over in Israel who's actually a dear friend of mine, Aran Segal, and he's doing this huge study. I think they're recruiting 10,000 people. And he did an initial one which looked at insulin resistance in different people, so not pregnancy, unrelated to pregnancy. And he's looking at personalised diets and how we work out what an individual needs. So can you take an individual, sequence their stool microbiome, for example, work out what communities they have with them, and can you design a diet to fit within their microbiome to, and we'll talk about pre and probiotics, I think that's a really important thing to work mm. at as well, but to fuel the population's diversity and the different things that we know are beneficial, the different classes of bacteria, etc. And what he actually found is that with a personalised diet, these people that were insulin resistant, so we'll say pre-diabetic, actually became normoglycemic, which meant that their sugar levels were then normal. And some of these people were told to eat a scoop of ice cream in a day or a piece of pizza or a complex carbohydrate. So what that study really showed me and illuminated in my mind when I was with him in Milan in 2018 was the fact that we really don't have a one-size-fits-all approach. We have a tendency to believe that that Mediterranean diet is beneficial. There's been lots of studies now done on the microbiome, the Mediterranean diet, and, you know, the, the facts are there that that's beneficial in terms of the diversity that's created and its stability. So I think what we'll work out over the next decade is that personalization of diets based on your own individual microbiome and how your body's functioning from a basic physiological point of view because I can eat a piece of chocolate cake it'll affect me differently than my partner who will eat a piece of chocolate cake so I think that's really important to go all of the fads and low carb and keto and this and that and pressure that we put on ourselves from everyone's opinion in society maybe just come back into the core of you as a human and go, actually, well, what does my body respond best to? So the science isn't quite there from a everyone can access that point of view. I mean, there are definitely companies out there in Australia, we've got at least three of them that you can send your sample to and get your microbiome. But the question is, what do you do with that then? So Mm -hmm. you can get a report that says you've got bugs that 
have a tendency to do X, Y, and Z, but then you sit there as an individual reading the report and my friend got one and I just had a gander at it because I was interested and I thought, okay, well, I don't know, I'm in this field and I wouldn't know what to do with this report. So they give some tangible um, activities or diet modifications that you could consider, but I guess we're not really in that space yet to be able to say X equals Y. And I guess the other really tricky thing that has come up through part of my PhD and all of this research is that the same bug doesn't function in the same way in two individuals. Wow. So there are so many spinning plates, which makes it very difficult to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It just reminds me so much of you know, and this is probably putting a bit of a downer on it, but cancer treatment. So, you know, that all in chemo, just slog it out, you know, where we were probably 10, 20 years ago, but we're now shifting over to, you know, CAR-T, personalised medicine, that type of thing, you know, actually sequencing the cancer and then adapting the therapeutic based on that. So, yeah, this is really like, you know, early doors, we are just discovering what is all going on here. And that is fascinated that the same bug can, I guess, work in two or more very, very different ways in two different people. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay, so are you able to share any preliminary results that you have found from your study with mums? Yeah, I mean, we're still in that deep dive process of, um, it's called bioinformatics, if you haven't heard of this word, and this is where we take all of that microbiome data and you run it through pipelines that have created it, you run it against sequence data that sits in repositories around the world for all of the other bugs that have ever been found. So some people are actually discovering new bacteria. So we've got a lot that, you know, have like species unknown because they've just never been oh, seen. Oh, wow. So, you know, that's that space is tricky to navigate but we're trying our best to do it and the next episode of this can be um, the results (laughs) section Um, but I think what we will find is similar to another lovely friend of mine his name's Omri Koran again in Israel these Israeli these Israelis are really at the forefront of some of this microbiome research they've got Um, really good research for lots of different areas in Israel it's 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 a fantastic place to be yeah, it seems, I mean, apart from when bombs are flying, which seems yeah. a bit scary, um, the actual research institute <laughs> seem to be doing very well and they're really lovely people. But basically um, what Omri's published recently is both human and translational mouse model studies, which my thesis will agree with, to suggest that we probably have bacterial signature or a microbiome signature within our stool in the first trimester of pregnancy that would go on to predict whether you develop gestational diabetes or not before you've had that diagnosis. Wow. So I think for me, that would be a very uh, humbling and lovely thing to also be able to back up with the data that we've found because it gives us an ability to have a problem, think about potential solutions that have never been able to be found before and to try and find some causation within that space. I guess that's the ideal Mm. for allowing women to feel like they've done all that they can to try and prevent pregnancy complications. My numbers are small. So out of my 100 women, 16 of them developed gestational diabetes and 11 of them developed a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. So when you're looking at power and statistics, everyone will be able to say, oh, that that study is just too small. But in its entirety, mums is the biggest of its kind in the world. In what we have collected from the women over that course of the time, the fact that I attended all of their deliveries, collected cord blood placental samples, you know, we've kind of, we've we've kept it a very broad base of next questions to answer in the future, like a big biobank full of tr- a treasure trove of questions and hopefully answers. That's um, amazing. Yeah. And- also from like as a researcher myself understand what the listeners need to understand is having the consent from each of these patients to collect each and every one of those different varieties of samples is amazing like that is that is a feat in itself yeah exactly 
to get to get them on board. Can I just touch on so you so you said that there's a particular signature of microbiome that was found in the stool samples that was that could be used as a predictor for gestational diabetes. <laughs> Is that something where you could possibly, you know, I'm just going, I'm, I'm going big picture. I'm going 10, 15 years down the track. We're going to use that as a diagnostic. At that point of the game, if someone, if a mother came back and, yep, positive for the high risk, are there certain things that a woman could do to change her, her risk you know, alterations to the diet where she perhaps wouldn't go on to actually have gestational diabetes? I think when we look at it from a pregnancy point of view, there's another study that my study has springboarded uh, or been the springboard for. It's called the Mother's Baby Study. So that's recruiting in all states in Australia and currently recruiting. So that's also being run through the Microbiome Research Centre. And they've got a big social media profile about that. I'm very clandestine and secretive and I don't like social media. So this is like very <laughs> uncomfortable for me, but they're big into that. And so they're, I, I think the question that they're, ans- that they're trying to answer, which is the one that I couldn't feasibly do for my thesis and therefore mums didn't include, is preconception. Okay. So I think the issue that we then raise with your question is once you're already pregnant, once that initial placentation has already occurred, maybe the signatures of that microbiome and their metabolites, so all the things that those little bugs produce, which mm-hmm. go into our circulation, have already taken effect and have mm-hmm. already paved the way for the development of or lent to a tendency of developing gestational diabetes. So what I feel, and I, this is complete speculation, is that it will be an intervention that is preconception. Mm-hmm. So it would be a really big push around women of reproductive age understanding themselves as individuals. And I think that's so important physiologically and psychologically and all of those things when you're in this journey into motherhood, which can sometimes be fraught, but also joyful. We know that there's, there's ups, downs and roundabouts. But I think what will happen eventually is that you will have potentially some stool sequencing performed, some you know, it might even be in the form of a blood test. You know, mm. there's these science, same scientists that I've mentioned have also looked at the, this is another big word, metabolomics. So you, there's all these omics. So there's metabolomics, bloody immunomics, histo- <laughs> oh, all of these omics. And there's all, Proteomics. Of these, all of these things that come out in science. And it's about, you know, translating what the bacteria are that you're there. Can you identify them? Then working out their function and therefore what's circulating your body as a result of their metabolism and mm-hmm. their being alive within you and actually it might be in the form of a blood test as opposed to a stool sample where you can say actually the metabolites from these bacteria we can identify with you know 99 whatever percent accuracy that you probably have these bugs in your stool and they're doing those correlation analysis so it might actually be a routine blood test that you might do the year before you try and have a baby which says, oh, actually, you know, you've got a little bit of a pro-inflammatory, you know, some of those some of those bad bacteria mm-hmm. in the wrong numbers, mm-hmm. which we call dysbiosis. This is another term that comes up. And I've created a whole new dictionary by, I've learned a whole new dictionary by writing my thesis, but this dysbiosis maybe increases your inflammation in your body and maybe the presence of this particular quantity of these bacteria if that's what they are, will be driving this inflammatory process and maybe that's what's causing either a gestational diabetic picture or even a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy picture, so high blood pressure in pregnancy. And is there something that we can do before you conceive to put that in an optimal balance so that potentially that's reduced and reversible? They did another study in Australia which looked at the intervention of probiotics once gestational diabetes was diagnosed and could it kind of prevent the progression of. So there's some research in the field to see whether things can change in that regard, which didn't have positive results, but was information gathering an important piece of scientific evidence to that kind of, it's all about piecing the little pieces of the puzzle together, really. Right, exactly. And 
you know, we as postpartum doulas, we talk about, you know, probiotics with prevention and treatment of things like mastitis. There's a very well-known brand, Chiara, which is on the market, which has been shown to be able to treat mild forms of mastitis through the use of a very specific strain of lactobacillus. And I guess my question from that is, you know, how with the research are they looking at specific individual bacteria or, again, you know, are we going back to that signature where, you know, we're just trying to push things into the anti-inflammatory instead of the pro-inflammatory kind of seesaw balance act. Yeah, I I think science is getting to the point where it is definitely going to be strain level. Um, So it will be targeted strains of different bacteria and therefore in the probiotics. So if we talk about probiotics and prebiotics, prebiotics are the food that that the bacteria thrive on. So they're like the building block that they will use. And a probiotic, I mean, yeah, a probiotic is the actual bacteria. So inoculating yourself with a bacteria, taking, ingesting it or giving it to yourself fecally. Like there's different ways of putting bacteria in your body. And I guess the difficulty in Australia is that and they're not a therapeutic. So they don't Mm. go through the CTA. They're a food supplement or a vitamin. So there's not anyone overseeing what's in them and determining that what's in them or what they say that's in them on the bottle is actually what's in them. So very well-marketed anything out there can get enough hype to say this is good for you for X, Y, and Z, and there's a flood of probiotics on the market. They're marketed for our children. They're marketed for reproductive age women. They're marketed for women with bacterial vaginosis recurrently. They're for vaginal microbiome health. They're for gut microbiome health. They're for your mental health, and we know that the microbiome impacts on all of these things. We've got increasing studies to say, you know, there's actually not one thing that they can find that might not have a correlation with your microbiome and your gut health and the gut-brain access and the neuroendocrine access and your hormones and everything under the sun. But it's about really now trying to ask the detailed question and filter down so that you can get those strain-specific impacts and effects. And there's definitely scientific communities around the world who are isolating particular strains from their cohorts to then use them in this capacity. So hopefully it will be much more specific in the future and much more tailored to the individual. Mm, yes, I can I can absolutely see it because I think there's like some companies out there where you send a blood test or something there's some sort of, you know, biological tissue or, or <laughs> fluid sample and then they send you back uh, vitamins you know, to balance you out and things yeah. like that. I can kind of foresee that that's maybe the the avenue that we're going down. Yeah. Question. So mm-hmm. we're looking at the mother's microbiome. Mm-hmm. How does that influence a child's microbiome? And I have I have uh, touched on this quite a few times in our podcast. So I had a planned C-section because I'm an A-type personality and my brain completely exploded when I went on mat leave and had nothing to do with my time. Um, and so because of my you mental health. baby at five minutes past eight on Yes, I was just like, what do you mean it can just arrive at any time? Yeah, I was not impressed with that. It didn't fit in with my mental health schedule. And so... So I've kind of described previously with the listeners that I didn't have a problem with any of it except for the issue around the fact that my daughter was not going to go through my vaginal tract and she was therefore not going to pick up all the, you know, microbiota and start to fuel her microbiome. And so I was researching around what are the things that I can do And my obstetrician at the time had mentioned a study, which I had read as well, being the PubMed nerd that I am, around the fact that, you know, you could insert a gauze in my vaginal tract first and then you could sweep it over her face when she was delivered by C-section. We didn't end up doing that because I decided, okay, I'm just going to breastfeed and she'll receive, you know, hopefully some 
lovely bacteria that way. Can you describe to me when a baby is born, do they already have, what's their microbiome or what's the microbiota that they've picked up? Is it minimal? And my second part to that question is, are they just only receiving, I guess, from the mother, but in their genetic makeup, does a father have an influence on the child's microbiome as well? Yeah, so the answer to all of those things, (laughs) one at a time, you'll have to remind me as I go along. So the first thing that you alluded to was the act of vaginal seeding. Yeah. So it is a huge um, area of distress and uncertainty and anxiety provoking. Am I going to, you know, make my child asthmatic and obese and diabetic if I don't try a vaginal yes, delivery. Yes, this is my stream of consciousness. I was like, oh, my God, she's going to have eczema, she's going to have allergies, she's going to have, you know, asthma, oh, yeah. my goodness. And also the fact that there was that uh, push and pull around when to deliver her because I think is it, is it correct me if I'm wrong, fact check me, but is it um, after 39 weeks they've got yeah. less likely of the, what's this, is it sticky lung or what's it called again? Yeah, it's called TTN, transient tachypnea of the newborn. Yes, so coughing up all the mucus and everything like that because she wasn't squeezed on the way out um, and had all the fluid pushed out of it. So, yes, that was absolutely my stream of consciousness (laughs) as I was umming and ahhing about this C-section. Yeah. So, look, you know, uh, vaginal seeding is a tricky one and I talk to my patients about it too, the risks versus the benefits. There's been some studies done for sure. Gloria Dominguez-Bello was one who studied, she's based at New, over in New York, and she, her, hus, her and her husband do microbiome research. Marty Blazer or Martin Blazer is her husband's name. And I think he's actually written a book about the disappearing microbes and has given us a great lecture as well. So, you know, I guess the whole point is what are we doing in society these days that was different from what we did you know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago. And the increase in cesarean section delivery is one of those things. And there are studies looking at associations with long-term health implications for children or our children who are delivered via cesarean. And they look at hospitalization rates, infection rates, asthma rates, obesity rates. I think what the microbiome field and this research is showing us is that in those first three years of life, There is this tumultuous change, acquisition of bugs, our exploring our environment. There's a reason children put everything in their mouth, right? It's not just because they want to, it's because they need to. So they need to scare the absolute bajorges out of us. Don't touch that, you're going to (laughs) choke. And I think, you know, we're creating that society where we're we're a bit more sterile and we're a bit more like, you know. Actually, one of my mums is a particularly anxious individual. I love her, bless her. And, you know, I'm looking through the sequencing and I remember every single mum's identification number. So I'm not, I'm not like blinded to anything because, I mean, I don't have to be, it's not part of the research. Yeah. But it's really interesting when I go through and go, oh, this person has a really low level of diversity, mm-hmm. but actually they're a complete clean freak and they can't have mess yeah. and they can't have stuff. So it's going to be really interesting to see what, you know, the children of these women look like as well. Anyway, I digress. So basically what we know is that there's this really turbulent stage, you know, from the time of birth to the age of three years where the child is acquiring their microbiome signature. We know from larger studies which also say that it's, you know, when you're talking about mum and dad, it's all related. Do they have animals in the house? You know, we can tell that people are related and live in the same household, even if you just looked at their stool samples. Mm. So there's definitely environmental impact on the microbiome. There's dietary impact, there's exercise impact, there's sleep impact, all of these things that are really hard to study and standardise and rationalise what impact three hours a night sleep has on this person versus 10 on this person's microbiome. So I think the dads do play a part. All of the skin-to-skin that we encourage is all moments of inoculating that baby with the bacteria from the outside world. Going back a little bit to that question is, well, are babies born sterile in the first place? So there is great debate with 
the researchers around the world that I value and respect dearly, and they sit on opposite sides of the spectrum. So, you know, there are some associations with poor periodontal health in women and miscarriages and mid-trimester losses, and they can see that some of the oral bacteria are present in the placentas of these people. Wow. Wow. Yeah, is there some hematogenous or bloodstream spread? Every time you brush your teeth, do you get a little bit of bacteria in your bleedy gum or you floss your teeth, etc.? Um, and is there some spread then that goes around the body? And most of the time we have our immune system, it just mops it up. But maybe when you're pregnant, you know, does the placenta also say, hey, thank you so much, I'll take some of those little bugs and I'll, you know, work that out. It, they can sit here and they can teach this little baby that, you know, these bugs are good bugs or not good bugs. They've done a study actually that came out last year looking at the intestines of babies early in gestation and, you know, used electron microscopy and lots of fancy tools to try and work out where the bugs were there. And, you know, then it's around proving that they're there, but are they actually alive? And so therefore, are they active? So, you know, I think that space is a definite Pandora's box and those questions have definitely not been answered to any form of concrete truth. To me, it makes sense that the baby has some exposure, even if it's to the antibodies that mum has to the different bugs. So when our immune system sees, I mean, we're all understanding vaccines and things now in this day and age, but, you know, when our immune system sees something different, it's primed to then work out whether it's a good or a bad bug. And I guess for all the other bugs that we have in our bodies, it's that mute point don't attack it if it's if it's seemingly okay and it's not attacking us and i don't know how the immune system identifies one or the other but it has to because we are in you know contact with millions of bugs all of the time um so there's got to be a point at which they go this one's causing us a problem and this one's not causing us a problem and i think you know that inoculation that happens either through the birth canal or the skin through a skin incision at cesarean does alter what that baby comes into the world with Mm. so when you look at that first six months of that baby's life in human studies the ratio of bacteroidetes and firmicutes two different types of bacteria that are our dominant ones in our stool are quite different but that they kind of seem to stabilize and match each other at that six month mark and maybe that's then the introduction of solids and you know there's other feeding practices that occur We know that the microbiome that babies get from the skin-to-skin, mouth-on-nipple, breastfed scenario is slightly different even to express milk in a sterilised bottle into baby, and that's different again to formula in terms of their stool diversity. So, you know, I am an advocate for whatever makes women's lives easier and surviving motherhood as opposed to, say, you know, one way or the highway. I'm I'm totally not that person. So I tell all of my women that, you know, as long as you can nourish your baby to the best of your abilities to keep them safe, that's all you need to worry about because people do worry about this. They go, actually, Mm. I've been told that if I don't breastfeed, I'm not a mum or if I haven't pushed my baby out, you know, I'm a lesser woman. I mean, I mean, all of that is just designed to make women feel terrible about themselves and I don't believe that that's what we should be doing or advocating so when we talk about this space I say this is what some of the evidence shows us the long-term implications of that we don't really know as I said Marty Blazer's done this interesting research in terms of cesarean section mice or actually antibiotics given to mice so I associate that in my brain with cesarean but 20% of the women have group B strep detected at 36 weeks, so they're getting prophylactic antibiotics intrapartum as well. So it's not just the cesarean babies that get antibiotics given to them routinely and that, you know, their fat mass is higher at 12 months, equivalent 12 months of age versus the children that, or the offspring of mice, at least in this study, that didn't get it. So I think that we will work out that there are metabolic impacts in terms of the lifestyle diseases that we're seeing increasing, like type 2 diabetes and obesity, and that once you reverse engineer all of the causation it might be to do with antibiotic exposure or the community of bacteria that we have. So I think they're difficult questions to answer and they're very multifactorial, but not beating ourselves up about it is important. Exactly, exactly. And to your point, I think I I reposted something um, on Instagram. It was from one of the researchers, I think from Mothers and Mothers Babies, and it was a list of almost like positive and negative kind of things to optimise your microbiome. And it had... It obviously in the negative it had like a C-section and, and formula fed or something like that. And I actually had 
one of followers comment and DM me personally and say, I didn't like that. That wasn't cool. And we are very open to different opinions. Everyone knows that. And I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that these are all multifactorial. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about having the evidence and the facts in front of you. And, you know, like myself, and this is what I said (laughs) to the follower, you know, a list like this was really useful for me because I chose to have a cesarean and there's some people who don't choose. There's an emergency situation and they need to have it. And so it, I think it, a list like that empowers a woman to go, okay, well, I had a C-section. So that in a factual sense is regarded as maybe negative on a microbiome. So what are the things that I can do to empower myself and go to that positive list and go, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll choose to breastfeed longer or if you can, or maybe I will try and diversify the microbiota by eating X, you know, foods or or whatever the case may be. So I'm really glad that you raised that point in the sense that, you know, it happens with everything in motherhood. We always get, you know, drowned out by this noise of you have tos, the shoulds and should nots, and that's not helping anyone. So (laughs) as scientists, we are here to just provide the facts and the evidence in front of you, and then you choose what is best for you and your family. And, you know, as we say, fed is best, as long as it's a loving, safe environment for your baby, then you know, we're all cool. Just touching on the kind of almost like the inoculation scenario. And it's a phenomenon that I kind of discovered. I'm not a very touchy feely person with people, but I could not stop kissing my daughter when she was a newborn. And there is, there is an evolutionary reason for that in the sense that their immune system is not very well equipped at that age. And so the kissing of a mother with is to pick up, correct me if I'm wrong, the microbiota on her skin so then I can then produce the antibodies. And if you're breastfeeding or expressing, they're getting that breast milk, the antibodies are coming out in that breast milk as well. So I love I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> and you're giving her or him, your child, the same signatures that you carry so that your environment is safe and you've created your home and that that microbial home is also safe for your offspring. So, you know, we, you know, there's this great, there's a great divide that happens. I think we've changed our parenting strategies. I think if you go back to even just now to the developing world and the carriage of children and the wearing of babies and the attempt of breastfeed, if not holding them close and they, you know, co-bedding, all of this stuff just keeps your child with you. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it makes a lot of sense from that um, sharing of your microbial community to have that, you know, there's that ironic, you know, scenario now where we have strollers and baby monitors and babies in rooms, you know, quite early on outside of, you know, the parental, the mummy nest in the bedroom, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're doing a lot of things early on to distance ourselves more and more from our children, um, purely from a micro microbial point of view as yeah. opposed to anything else. But we don't think about that consciously because that pram's trendy and that baby monitor's got all these features and, you know, this is what we're going to do X, Y, and Z now. And, you know, I think we, we pull ourselves away from the core of being human in that, in that, you know, very difficult transition in life to become a mum. It's not easy for everybody, doesn't come naturally for everybody. And we try and put all of the little things in place that we, as you said, should. We should have this. We should have nappies. We should have, you know. Yeah, I just, I find that the tricky part of navigating the women that I look after as well, just Mm. to give them permission to do it the way that they want to do it and whatever feels natural and right for them, which might be the complete opposite of what they thought they would be or who they thought they would be as a mum. So to to just take the pressure off from that point of view. Yeah, 100%. People always say, you know, when a baby is born, so is a mother. And I don't think there's enough reflection on that, you know, obviously first time mums, but even second and third time mothers, you're juggling a completely different dynamic in the household as well. 
Right. Danny, we're going to wrap up with um, some rapid fire questions, if that's okay with hey. you. Um, just, just, just a few. It's okay. It's not hot seat um, with Eddie. <laughs> I can't call a friend. No <laughs> and I guess putting on your hat as you know an obstetrician and also a researcher with with these things. But what is your top tip for birthing mothers? Surrender. The top word, the top tip, surrender to the process, have deep trust not only within yourself but in your care providers around you and then everything will be okay. Mm, I wish I had that advice. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to look after you next time. (laughs) No, sorry, we're one and done here. (laughs) We're one and done. We are one and done. No no judgment from me. What is your, do you have a go-to resource, whether it be a book or a workshop for, for mums? Oh, good. No, I, I don't. I think we should develop one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and my last question, which is what I ask all of our um, guests, what do you keep on your bedside table? Oh, good question. Actually, so if I think about what's on my bedside table now, I have got a diffuser with some lavender oil sitting next to it mm-hmm. um, and another lovely uh, blend oil called Clearify, which just makes the world a calm place. I love yeah. that. There you go. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. I have learned so much and I've kind of written all these notes. I'm very, very excited to hear what the final results are going to be from your PhD thesis. And we are 100% going to have you back on this podcast. So I feel like this is just going to be a rolling topic. And as we've touched on, we are only at the tip of the iceberg in this research area. I think it's really, really exciting. And I know it might be a bit confusing for some people because there's just a lot of science going on and because there's so many unknowns. You know, Danny and I were talking about earlier the fact that there is a lot of fluff out there where people are like, you have to do this and you have to do this and that's what influences your microbiome and blah, blah, blah. The answers really are that we don't know at this stage. We're still piecing it all together and I think that that is a really exciting time to be in. So I'm so glad to have had you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule in between catching babies. (laughs) So thank you again and we will absolutely see you next time. Thanks very much, Renee. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.